0: Hey, JJ here with The Outer Value. This is episode 101, Investing 101. Okay, so embarking on the next 100 episodes. Today I'm going to talk about, uh, oh, I hope you can't hear that motorbike going past here. I'm in the car, um, soundproof booth at the moment. Uh, It's the best place to record at the moment in the current situation that I'm in. And so I want to talk about this interview with Stanley Druckenmiller. Stanley Drucken Miller, the Druck, sometimes called the Druck. And this was an interview from about three weeks ago, I think, at the Sone Conference, I think that's what you call it. SOHN. And uh it was a good interview, and the interview was by John Collison, who is, if you don't know, one of the founders, co founders of Stripe. So it's interesting, really kind of young entrepreneur interviewing a, a a veteran investor and he's a he's known as a macro investor makes big macro calls pretty focused and uh is more of a trader than anything else he was uh trained uh educated worked for uh, george soros for, for for a time for a, quite a long time and so i think we can think of him in that vein so uh, the interview is pretty long. It's an hour and ten, so I'm just going to summarise it and uh, give some comments along the way. Hopefully, it'll be shorter than an hour and ten minutes. But uh, some of the points that he makes are inflation being five percent, the market as a economic uh, predictor, uh, crypto effect on other asset classes. He talks about gold versus Bitcoin. He talks about conviction of uh, the conviction and being hot and cold as a as a trader being either hot or cold, he believes in streaks, like not lucky streaks, but being on like a baseball streak, for instance. And his advice to young investors, he talks about the COVID, that period in the market where where COVID beneficiaries really took off. Uh, He talks about his bias towards growth stocks and uh, taking account of that, thinking about that. And he talks about the, the uh, the market's pain scale. So the possible scenarios going forward, he gives does give some market predictions, and he's pretty pessimistic on the macro situation, um, because he talks about being bullish, the bullish and bearish possibilities. So Stan is one. Also, he's uh, John talks about Stan being a role model for a lot of young young investors uh, because of his top performance, well reserved top performance over many decades, and he's a, he watches the macro, and the, uh, he's a macro investor. So I just want to say to the outset, it's kind of I think it's a bit pointless, and he Stan mentions this. It's a bit pointless looking at his 13F filings for the last quarter because he can be in and out pretty quickly if he changes his mind. He could just give an interview one day and then change his mind the next day. It's just like that. So, it's not uh, it's not worth kind of looking at what he's into what he's in now. But he, he does did have energy some quite a bit of energy stocks I think at this time of the interview. So he said last now John starts off to the saying last summer when the market was uh, hunky dory, uh, nice phrase, quaint phrase, hunky dory. Uh, John's Irish and said uh, the monetary and fiscal policy. As uh, Out of step with economic circumstances, and he saw a raging mania in all assets. So he was basically calling him a, a massive bubble uh, last summer, Northern Hemisphere summer. And uh, what he asked, what is he predicting now? Which is pretty much what we, we want to know, right? So Stan says, I have many predictions, I've had many predictions that didn't turn out. So it's nice that you picked one that did turn out, he, he says. Uh, being fairly modest there but selective picking he's been oh that's to say he's been right more than he hasn't been or as he as he as he uh as he explains when you're right you've gotta uh when you when you when you're right and you think the odds are in your favor sort of bet big selective picking he said and inflation is a little higher than i thought it would be but i did think it was going to be above six percent obviously it's about eight percent right now which seemed radical at the time, a radical call at the time. So he, that's what he was calling that came, that was correct. He said, uh, the bubble has really burst with a vengeance a lot more than you can see in the S&P 500. This was, mind you, this was nearly probably a month ago, I'd say. A lot of good companies have been uh, de-rated 60-70% without, uh, without a whole lot of change in the fundamentals. So valuations have improved relative to where they were, and the Fed was slow to recognise the problem that we that we have, and they are still buy they were still buying bonds in March 20, 2022, and not pivoting verbally until November. That period was incredibly costly, he says, for the for the market. I think he's talking about and the macro environment. A lot of assets were bought in that period that people will lose a lot on. These people were kind of, because uh, the Fed wasn't sort of not raising alarm bells, but not pivoting to their new stance. You know, inflation was transitory until it wasn't. Uh, there was, there, we are, where are we now? John asked, and he said, it's hard to believe we can unwind in six months, but guess, my guess, best guess is that in six months, we're six months into a bear market that may have some time to run. Uh, highly probable that the bear market is has a ways to run yet he reiterated is it going to be a soft or hard landing another burning question that people talk about is it going to have a recession or not I don't know but the probabilities of a soft landing are pretty remote he said so he kind of does have conviction on that and his reasoning we've only we've only pulled off two or three soft landings in history. Like in 1994, 95, which he invested through, and never had a soft landing without uh, when inflation got to above four, four to five, four point five percent. So that's a, a historical fact that he's pulled up. Never had a soft landing when inflation got to above four point five percent. It's it's like eight and a half at the moment. We're facing an extraordinary situation. Projections of two percent rates. We're so far behind the inflation rate. Where we are so far behind the inflation rate. And uh, such a good asset, it's such a broad asset bubble going into it, he said, it's very hard to say we'll have a soft landing. they they the, the indicators aggressively point to a hard landing. I've been wrong plenty of times, he said, but betting on a soft landing to me is a long shot this time. And history says when inflation gets above 5%, it's hard to tame it and it's never come down until the fed funds rate has gone above cpi which is currently above eight percent so that would imply that inflation uh, that interest rates could go over eight percent if inflation stays that high even if it's like even if this is me talking even if it goes down to five percent it means that the rates are going would go over five percent he says it's been a disruptive period and uh for like in tech what and he gives the example of stripe because john's there but there have there should be it should have been many bankruptcies during that period, but they were saved by the Fed. So destruction would be quite material if rates go up that much. So he's hedging uh, his position—not hedging his position. They said if inflation rates do go up, but all bets are off because it'll be a very hard landing. I think he's implying there. I do think inflation is going to come down without that happening, though. He says I think a recession is on the cards, is in the cards. I just don't know when. I'm guessing sometime in 2023. So he's not guessing that we're in in a recession now, or that, uh, which is quite possible. I think that we'll see. So Stan thinks the stock market is an indicator of the economy. That's how he looks at things. That stock market indicates the economy, not not the other way around. See, a lot of people have the opposite view that the stock market isn't the economy. Well, he's not saying it is either, but. It's an indicator of what's happening in the economy long before, say, the Fed, the, this, that um, that uh, economists, most economists look at. But he looks at different indicators and he looks at the market. So he says stocks tend to, this is really important actually for his philosophy and it's really interesting. Stocks tend, he says stocks tend to lead the fundamentals by 6 to 12 months. So stocks lead the fundamentals, but there is also market inefficiency. Uh, he indicates, he Indicators are industries that lead the economy and ones that lag, like housing and retail. Leading industries that indicate what's going on in the economy, that is housing and retail, for instance. We do the macro by listening to companies that lead the economy and ones that lag. Bottom up analysis from there. If the leading industries are turning up or down, that's a signal. It has worked beautifully. Another signal in the on is the bond market, but not in recent years because it's been manipulated by the Fed. And the approach has allowed us to perform and to outperform the Fed in in terms of economic forecasts over the last twenty to thirty years. So he thinks the the way that they do macro forecasting is outperformed what the Fed's what the Fed's been thought. And he also says that sectors have been. Uh, the, what sectors? He was asked. What sectors have you been looking at as indicated, as as predictors? And he says, uh, not getting fancy. You just have to look at the home builders themselves right now, which supposedly, uh, with with supposedly good fundamentals, they're all they've all declined fifty percent from their highs, from their market highs. Also, trucking down forty percent since since reporting record and Despite recording record earnings in retail, he said to a lesser extent, it's it's a little tainted because of COVID. But even so, uh, appears to be weaker than it should be compared to GDP numbers. All this is a all this is a signal that may there may be trouble ahead. It can be six months to a year before it you know before it's seen in the in the wider economy. And he's been, he's made higher returns in bear markets than in bull markets, he says, but you have to innovate and not be a slave to past models that you've used. Bonds have been a go-to in bear markets, but not this time, he thinks. He says, currently, in terms of forecasting and analysis, he says on the macro, he says, currently I'm very challenged. We've been lucky to make some money in the past six to eight months. But uh, by having short, by being short fixed income and short stocks, not doing much in currencies and owning so, some key commodities like oil, gold, which he said hasn't worked and copper. Uh, it's He said it's getting harder now, though, to make money in this bear market. Not so confident being short equities, he says, taking a bit of a break from that and waiting for a fat pitch that's... Uh, Buffett saying you don't have to pitch all the, you don't have to hit or swing all the time, wait for the big, fat pitch and then swing big, pretty much is a a similar philosophy. And uh, fixed income has been complicated, he's sitting on the sidelines for that. And currencies, he's not doing much, but uh, might short the dollar at some stage. Uh, he still owns energy and ukraine has, he says has extended that trade and uh but it could and he thinks it could go on for some while but you know he said don't quote him on that he could change his mind tomorrow that's the way that's the way he rolls he depending on what he sees out there uh how but he's, he's he's saying there's no demand collapse or anything at the moment how would you go to how would you get to higher conviction on shorting in the current environment he says shorting stock because he's not shorting Shorting much if the market were to rally 15 to 20 percent over the intermediate term. He said I'd take a short uh, Take a shot because six-month bear market preceded by asset bubbles don't exist historically Let's say that again Uh, Six-month bear markets preceded by asset bubbles don't exist historically And I think we still have a lot of wood to chop, meaning still more to go down on interest rates. I want to hear where the Fed is to see how that's unfolding and then see on inflation, if it's it's embedded or not. There's a lot of people saying that it's it's still going to go down. It's not embedded. This is just still basically temporary or transitory, but longer, but still transitory. I'm taking a break, he said. I want to be fresh and I'm in no hurry. It's a marathon and I'm not running flat out on mile 16. And uh, keeping in mind, if you don't know, that a marathon uh, marathon's 26.2 miles, I think. And so, so that's on the macro situation. He was asked about crypto, which was also interesting. He said he expects it to affect other asset classes, the decline in crypto and strong correlation between crypto and the NASDAQ. Seems that seems pretty obvious now, even though a lot of people say it's not supposed to be. It's sort of independent, but if you, it's pretty much moving like the Nasdaq since it started declining. He's sympathetic to Munger's view on crypto and to Bill Miller's. So if you don't know, Munger's very bit very down on on crypto. thinks it's all going to go to zero, and uh, thinks it's all a Ponzi scheme. And Bill Miller's pretty heavily into it. He's just going with the flow and buying. Uh, and so he sort of uh, understands that he said it's yet to play out and I don't want to bet on it with any conviction either way he'll be surprised if but he'll be surprised if blockchain isn't a force in the economy in five to ten years from now a major disruptor within uh, with some companies he said keeping in mind he's talking to the stripe founder a disruptive company in the fintech space one of uh, one of the biggest and uh, not not a public company yet. So he says he's 69, but a younger Stan would be diving into it much more. Younger people understand new asset classes much better he, or classes better than he would. He understands that. And sometimes he's employed younger people um, and kind of directed them in terms of how big their trades are. He talks about that in the dot com bubble. He did that even back 20 years ago. He said, but he said, if I were a tech investor, I'd certainly be looking into blockchain very deeply and the possible disruption that it might take. But fundamentals are fundamentals, he also says. So that's interesting. If he was younger, he'd be getting into blockchain as a, disrupt, a disruptor of the future of the next five to 10 years and more. Now, he's asked about gold versus Bitcoin. He said, if you have it, he said, if you had an irresponsible monetary policy going on, which he thinks there is, in a bull case, you might be, you might want to own Bitcoin Bitcoin and in a bear, in a bear phase, you might want to own gold. And uh, he said, if there's an inflationary bear bull market, I'd want to own Bitcoin more than gold. And he says, if there's a bear market, a stab a stagflation type of bear market, I would want to own gold. Oh, I said. Actually, sorry, did I say inflationary bull market? He would want to own Bitcoin more than gold, and a stagflation bear market, he'd want to own. He'd want to own gold. But you've got to know, or you've also got to know where your biases are. This is, uh, you know, take, if he, uh, for the listener, uh, is, you know, think about what his biases are where he's older and uh, he's got, got a growth investor bias, growth company bias. I'm a hard worker, but I've, I'm just stimulated by the, the game of thinking about how the how the world will look in six months, he said, in terms, you know, he said, It's like he works hard, but only because he is it's fun. He loves the game, which a lot of great investors say they just love the game. Game of probabilities. I do fear for the retail bull market geniuses. He said there's a lot of them who were surfing with a hurricane behind them and there were nice waves behind them. So this is talking about the last few years. They may become very discouraged if the story does not end well. Well, it hasn't ended well, but he thinks if it gets a lot worse, people could get very discouraged. So here's the philosophy of putting all eggs in one basket and then watching that basket carefully. So it's contrary to what is taught in a lot of business schools, and, uh, but he, he doesn't want stale longs or stale shorts. They both trouble. Better to be concentrated and paranoid. Uh, and uh, sizing is 70 to 80% of the equation. This is something that George Soros told him, he said, uh, taught him. It's how much you're right or wrong. and It's not, it's, it's not how much you're right or wrong. It's how much you make when you're right and how much you lose when you're wrong. And he learned, yep, learned that from Soros. I also believe in streaks. Sometimes you're seeing the ball. Sometimes you're not like baseball. Uh, now, know when you're hot and when you're cold. Turn up the dial when you're hot and when you're cold. Don't make big bets to get back to even. Be self-aware. He'll size up positions of technical analysis, analysts that work for him on his on his team who are on a hot streak. So he's learned to tell who's on a hot streak and who's not. So this is pretty different from a, like a value investing Buffett, where it's very long term, and uh, you, you know it's not like this is re- really trading stuff. And this is in the past twenty ten to twenty years. You don't have the time anymore to do deep deep dive analysis. It's different again. But wait, he says you do have time. But if you have the if you have the intuition, you buy it, and then do do the the analysis after that. And if it doesn't pan out, as opposed to wait to do the analysis, so you don't do the analysis first and then buy you. You can buy some and then do the analysis for like over ten days. That way, when you enter it, he says, there's no story out there. In 10 days, there's still no, probably still no story if you're wrong. And there's a bear market story. If there's a bear market story, you'll find out in the meantime. He talked about analysts going out to dinner and talking, so you'll find out a bear case pretty quickly. And then he talks about the famous story of the tech bubble where he lost billions, but it's more complicated than that. Uh, He talked about, uh, he put, This is how it played out. He put long trades on in the last last days even though he knew it was dangerous and how he came to that was the longer version of the story is that in March 1999 he shorted internet stocks to the tune of $200 million and it was a $600 million loss. Um, And so he was down double digits after that for the year And he backed off and he hired two people in their 20s who were keen on internet stocks and knew more than he did. He pivoted to internet stocks and was up 42% for that. And so he had a massive year. But in January 2000, I'd say the bubble, I'd say it's a bubble to saw us and I sell them. So in January 2000, he sold, he pretty much sold exactly at the right time. But his two young guns who were working for him were making like 8% a day. And so this started to get at him, drove him nuts. And he says now it's March two thousand, which is pretty much that's when early to early March two thousands when the bubble started bursting. He says I have a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, and uh, I bought, I bought and missed the top by about an hour. He said, and I bought six billion dollars. It was huge. It was a massive loss, two to three billion dollars. The exit was messy, and I and I was down eighteen percent again. Wow, eighteen percent from up being that much. Uh, and I'm an, I was emotional. Uh, you know, that's not not too much when you think about it. He says I was an emotional mess, and uh, said I was quitting exhausted. It took a while to get out of the trades. Um, and he went to Africa on a holiday. He took uh, didn't look at the markets. Took a true break, um, knowing and not knowing what was going on. And then the market, and then when he got back, the market had recovered quite a lot. Quite a lot. It's sort of what you call a um, a dead gorilla bounce, perhaps. And so he had, a, he had a clear head. He, had, he'd, you know, had got confidence back somehow. And he put, he said, he put 350 uh, percent, 10-year equivalent, on the, of the fund in treasuries, betting that Greenspan would tighten, mon- uh, tighten, and we'd go into recession, which played out. It was 40 percent. Oh, he made 40 percent in the fourth quarter, even though I'd, he'd given up for the year. He needed a break, and I wouldn't have. If he hadn't had a break, he wouldn't have done it. So he advocates having a break when you kind of get into that position and he cleared my head and it's could trade I could see the trade and scale it to restore confidence. He said Soros made him focus on what moves the stock. Look the, the stock price that's I guess we're talking about catalysts. Made him focus on that. What moves the stock price? Not and change it's a change moves stock prices, not the now. He said during COVID, people invested in the moment. Uh, a look at I look at new re- uh, new retail investors came in. They were rewarded immediately in the early parts of COVID, but they'd never played the longer game. More new money in the market exaggerated the effects of COVID beneficiaries. He had a bias towards, he, he says, he's a gro- he has a bias towards growth stocks and ignored, but ignored that for the, over the past year or two for because he saw the bubble there. I do... Uh, he says he do. He does a lot of counter cyclical trades, but uh, his biggest money's actually been made in growth stocks over time. So he forced himself just to, to back off in that last uh, during that COVID period, where everything, all the emerging techs and techs went nuts. He was asked, John asked, if if was big te- if is is big tech getting too cheap to be not in on it? He said, Not yet. I'm too bearish on the world. and t- too cheap it's cheap but it's too cheap to be to have shorts on though uh, Michael Burry had short has puts on Apple I see don't know if he still does, that was the last 13th, ocean shipping and trucking are over earning he said and the world might look quite different, might pull back and uh, it's but it's much harder to short now, talks about energy trades, they've got uh, caution against, he says he cautions against looking at his 13th because he moves quite fast and it's not uh, it's not the thesis that was a while ago, so implying that he might that he might not be in, in in traditional energy anymore. But he said it's still cheap, and he does see a two to three could see it two to three years out being, uh, to you know a sustained trade basically. Um, he can't see dis- demand destruction. He's not seeing it yet. This was a month ago, mind you, uh, back, but. It's gone down a bit. Back in 2005 was a warning of financial crisis coming. He uh he was out of John you were nine out of ten you know bearish back then. And how about now? And there's no historical analog for the economic state now. He says he's open-minded to something really bad happening. The guy this guy on one shoulder, and he's not predicting it, but not sure. And on the other shoulder, he says he's open-minded because uh, this is hard to analyze the situation as ever before. It's hardest, harder than ever in his career to analyze what's going on now. And we have not seen this before. 2005 was a no-brainer, he thought. By looking at housing charts, all this, all this securitizing of uh, financial products. Short. He was shorting housing. He was wrong for six months there, but it did play out, which is a common story with uh, uh, Michael Burry, long for a while there too. I mean, it was wrong for a while there too early, but it happened. So he can see a possible grim scenario like the 1930s, absolutely uh, buying, uh, you know, uh, buying power destruct- dest- destruction, and then the Fed pumps it all up again, and we get horrible stagflation, or do we get deflation? So, it's, you know, could could be inflation or deflation. Um. Kathy Woods is calling deflation and Michael Burry is calling massive inflation. So take your pick. Every deflation has has followed. He didn't say that. I said that. Every deflation has followed an asset bubble. He said the Fed has created the biggest asset bubble and the broadest in history. A lot of air air has already come out, but it's so big. I have to be open minded about the consequences. So he's basically saying there's air come out, but it could be bigger. It could be a no growth. It could be no growth and sideways for twenty years, of it, but macro. Well he and then he was asked, uh, "Why he was a macro inve- investor?" And he says, "Macro, uh, macro investors like chaos and outperform. And they uh, you outperform in a bear market. He has been, but his bias is actually, you know, he is a bearish bias. But and we need to be aware of that, and the, all the pessimism, and he." They have plenty of options in a bull market, too. So in 1995 to 1990, he did well, for instance, and he has a growth investing bias. All right, that's pretty much the summary of the interview. Really interesting. I found it fascinating because he's been one of the most successful macro investors and made more probably more right calls than wrong, although he could be wrong. Just fascinating what, it, what he's been through decades of it. So really interesting to see what Druck has to say when he does speak about what's going on. Compared to last year, which he, he was pretty much right about this bubble bursting. All right, that's it. So if you got any value out of this, like and subscribe, follow wherever you can, on your favorite apps and sites, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, uh, and join me on Twitter at The Art of Value. Okay, see you next time.